Welcome to World War I Centennial News. It's about World War I news 100 years ago this week, and it's about World War I now, news and updates about the centennial and the commemoration. World War I Centennial News is brought to you by the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission and the Pritzker Military Museum and Library. Today is May 10, and I'm Teo Mayer, the Chief Technologist for the World War I Centennial Commission, and your host today. We've gone back in time 100 years. It's 1917 and we're coming up on Mother's Day. Mothers always play a special and difficult role in war, and World War I is certainly no exception. Let's take a look. The motherhood image plays a key role in America's recruitment campaigns. The war propaganda artists use mother figures to remind young men of their duty to their country and family, and to assure them that their mothers and their wives will be very proud of them if they become soldiers. One notable poster shows a mother and a wife embracing a newly minted recruit with the slogan, They're proud of you. Be proud of yourself. Another shows a mother inviting a reluctant young man forward with the slogan, Go, it's your duty, lad. Join today. Mothers are the home front resource managers. They are the fundraisers for the war effort promoting war bonds and raising money with bake sales and raffles and all the while they conserve. They keep the family home and the life going under sharp rationing of essential goods. And they're filling in in all sorts of places as American men take up soldiering. Mothers are the healers as they nurse the wounded. A World War I Red Cross propaganda poster shows a caring nurse with the slogan, The Greatest Mother in the World. And they're also healers in another way. The devastating loss of life in World War I leaves many mothers with the heartbreaking task of mourning and memorializing their dead. One of the memorial symbols is the gold star. Families are hanging popular man-in-service flags in their windows, red, white, and a blue star. Mourning mothers cover that blue star with gold fabric, symbolizing their loss. Women are encouraged to forego the traditional mourning garb in favor of a simpler black armband with a gold star. Woodrow Wilson refers to these women as the gold star mothers. Moving forward 10 years to 1928, the organization American Gold Star Mothers is founded. To this day, Mothers who have lost a child in military service wear a gold star pin to honor their deceased. Moving forward to the present, we address the difficult conflict of motherhood and war during the Commission's April 6 commemoration event in Sacrifice for Liberty and Peace with a medley sung in counterpoint. Here is Chrissy Poland with America Here's My Boy, counterpointed with Ramona Dunlap with I Didn't Raise My Boy to Be a Soldier. There's a million mothers knocking at the nation's door A million mothers, yes, and there'll be millions more And while within each mother's heart they pray Just hear what one brave mother has to say America, I raised a boy for you America, you'll find him strong America, he is my own. 
soldiers to the war have gone, some may never return again. Ten million mothers' hearts must break for the ones who died in Mother's Day to mothers of soldiers everywhere, we salute you and we thank you for bearing your gold star burden. Joining us now is former NPR correspondent Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog. This week, Mike is going to cover a very thoughtful post from the Great War Project blog about poetry in the trenches. Mike, it seems like the very nature of this nearly unimaginable trench warfare is becoming as much a battle of the spirit as a combat of arms. Tell us about it. It certainly is, Theo, and it's produced some extraordinary poetry. Our headline for today is, Bitterness Among the Troops is Growing. As desertion mounts, it turns to mutiny. Biting words from the poets of the front, special to the Great War Project. The on-again, off-again nature of trench warfare on the Western Front leaves plenty of time for contemplation among the troops deployed there. For those who fought in the trenches, writes historian Martin Gilbert, there were many moments of contemplation and long periods of waiting, with time to reflect on the purpose and consequences of the war. At this moment in the war, during a short period of rest and recuperation, the British poet Isaac Rosenberg finished the first draft of a poem that described the course of a limber, a hand-pulled vehicle carrying barbed wire up to the front line. The wheels lurched over the sprawled dead, but pained them not, though their bones crunched. Their shut mouths made no moan. They lie there huddled, friend and foeman, man born of man and born of woman. And shells go crying over them from night to night and now. Earth has waited for them all the time of their growth, fretting for their decay. Now she has them at last. 
There are poems and essays and letters, thousands of letters. Just one comes to his family from a young soldier who cannot fathom the astounding destruction he sees at the front lines. Nothing, he writes, will ever justify all the damnable waste and unfairness of this war. I only hope when those who are left will never, never forget at what sacrifice those improvements have been won. The more the poets wait, the more they have the opportunity to refine their writing, making it sharper and more angry, reports historian Gilbert. Poets who were in the trenches had begun to write with unprecedented bitterness. The well-known poet Siegfried Sassoon caught a mood of hopelessness in his description of a soldier in a working party, piling sandbags along the parapet of his trench at night, eager to get back to his tot, his ration of rum, and sleep. He pushed another bag along the top, craning his body outward. Then a flare gave one white glimpse of no man's land and wire. And as he dropped his head, the instant split his startled life with lead, and all went out. The anti-war sentiment is spreading among the soldiers as well, and not just in Russia, where thousands of soldiers are already abandoning their positions. The number of desertions in France is steadily growing, turning into widespread mutiny. It's beginning to threaten the entire French war effort. By later in May, a century ago, troops are ignoring orders from their officers. Some 30,000 troops are abandoning their positions, seizing buildings, refusing to go to the front. It is a dangerous moment for the French, and indeed for all the Allied powers, in what appears to be an endless fight in what has come to be known as the Great War. And that's our stories for today. Thank you, Mike. That was Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog. On to 100 years ago this week in the Great War in the Sky. This week, a French pilot, Colonel René Fonck, downs six German aircraft in a single day. Let's meet this interesting man whose skills ultimately earn him the title of Allied Aces of Aces, but whose personality does not match the cool bravado and hero of the sky that many of his compatriots garner. Funk is apparently a meticulous man who, at the outbreak of World War I in 1914, receives conscription papers and decides to become an engineer, building trenches and reinforcements, but his interest in airplanes leads him to take flight training. Like France's leading ace, Captain Georges Guinemer, a dashing hero of the sky, he begins flying the limited production SPAD S7. This aircraft features a hand-loaded 37-millimeter cannon that fires through the propeller. This is a really unwieldy weapon, but Funk manages to down 11 German airplanes with the cannon. Then he transitions to the more powerful SPAD S8. Later in 1917, the Germans applaud when the beloved French ace Guinemer is shot down by Lieutenant Kurt Weissmann. Just a short time later, Funk shoots down Weissmann and names himself the tool of retribution, though in the end it turns out that the aircraft downed by Funk was probably more likely a different Weissmann. But he is an amazing flyer. By the end of the war, he has 75 confirmed kills, making him the allied ace of aces, though he submits a claim for 142, only 75 are confirmed. Despite his stunning success in the air, Funk is never embraced by the public. He has a withdrawn personality. He seldom socializes with the other pilots, and instead he prefers to focus on improving his aircraft and planning tactics. When Funk does socialize, he's thought of as awkward, arrogant, and egotistical. To quote a fellow flyer, Funk is a slashing rapier in the sky, but on the ground he's a tiresome braggart. 
On the other hand, he did survive the war. So we salute Colonel René Fonck from the Great War in the Sky 100 years ago this week. Let's move on to our friends from the Great War channel on YouTube. They offer great videos about World War I. This week's new episodes include Reinventing the Cavalry in World War I, The Battle of Arleur, Robert Nivelle Gets Fired, and Out of the Trenches. We've come forward into the present time to World War I Centennial News Now. Updates about the centennial and the commemoration. We'll begin with activities and events. In Michigan, the Michigan World War I Centennial Commission recently held a wonderful local event. It's called A Taste of the Trenches, an event featuring cocktails, food, and music from the era. As a fundraiser, their guests were treated to World War I exhibits, including combat uniforms, a musical group, The Dugouts, which provided World War I-era musical entertainment, and a bar that featured World War I-era cocktails like the B&B, Brandy and Benedictine, Vin Rouge, Sidecars, French 75s, and the wonderfully named Monkey Gland. Now, what is a Monkey Gland? We're not going to tell you. But if you'd like to know, the Michigan State Commission has generously shared their cocktail recipe book with us, and you'll find it in the link in the podcast notes. So make yourself a monkey gland and enjoy. On another front, the National Park Service has recently launched a World War I website. With us today is Nathan King, the National Capital Region's Digital Communications Specialist for the National Park Service. Welcome, Nathan. Thank you. Nathan, you're process for collecting the stories from the website is pretty unique. Tell us about how you guys did that. Sure, Taylor. The National Park Service is working right now to build more topic-based content on nps.gov. The idea is that if you're interested in a particular topic, we can connect you with an actual place that you can go and have a first-hand experience there. We've already got a few sites for this about pirates and forts and about bears. And with the centennial of World War I, we recognized that the National Park Service had an opportunity to highlight stories and connections in the parks to the First World War. And for the first time, we were able to bring together some of these stories in one place. Now, we, we knew we had a few different stories that we wanted to tell, but we really didn't know how many stories were out there and how much content we really could create. And we also didn't know how we were going to find all of that content. So we decided on a format for the website that let us crowdsource that content. And we put the word out on the street and worked our networks. And over a few months, we received a lot of great material from the parks and programs from coast to coast. And now you can visit that website at go.nps.gov slash WWI. And on the website, you can explore by topics that you're interested in, or you can also explore the map to find parks nearby uh, or someplace that you might want to go to discover some of these stories about World War I. And right now, we still don't know how many more stories are out there waiting to be discovered. So Nathan, uh, these stories were submitted by local park rangers and local parks uh, about World War I? That's right. We had park rangers that are in the field in these parks who do the research and provide those interpretive programs that you might join when you visit a national park. We also had historians and subject matter experts that work in some of the program offices behind the scenes contributing material to this website. 
So the National Park Service is just about 100 years old. So you guys came into being just about the time that World War I happened. The National Park Service celebrated its centennial in 2016. And the National Park Service, of course, was created in 1916, right in the middle of World War I. Well, thank you, Nathan. Uh, it's a really great way to approach the program, starting to let people explore the National Park Service system based on vertical interests. That's really cool. Thank you. Thanks a lot. That was Nathan King, the National Capital Region's Digital Communication Specialist for the National Park Service. For the Marines, the National Museum of the Marine Corps is located in Quantico, Virginia. They've started to hold a bi-weekly event called World War I Wednesdays. There's one today, May 10, and there'll be another one May 24th, and then every other week on Wednesdays. The event includes activities for adults and children, as well as informational displays. Then on June 10, they're holding a World War I-themed family day and event that will commemorate the Battle of Bellow Woods, a story we'll be talking about more in the coming weeks. There's a link in the podcast notes. It's time for updates from the States. But before that, last week, we announced the first of many collaborations with the Commission and Professional Sports. We've been working with the president of the International League. So this May and into June, various league teams are going to hold World War I night, honoring the Doughboys. If you're a baseball fan and on the East Coast, we just launched a new webpage that gives you the schedule for these games at www.cc.org baseball, all lowercase. And speaking of baseball, from Hawaii's World War I website at www.cc.org Hawaii, we have a new post in the article section about a Hawaiian World War I soldier who was a renowned local baseball player. Apau Sam Kao was a Chinese-American pitcher. He deployed to France in July 1918 at the age of 28 and served in the 315th Infantry. Sam lost his life on November 5th, just six days shy of the armistice. Learn more about this man as an athlete and as a soldier at www.cc.org Hawaii. From the Arkansas State World War I Commission comes an interesting program and an idea other state commissions may want to explore. They've created a weekly one-minute radio series in collaboration with local public radio station KUAR 89.1 FM. These segments highlight stories of Arkansan life during the war, and you can listen to them online at their website. The link is in the podcast notes. And in Delaware. On Saturday, May 6, visitors were treated to a behind-the-scenes tour of the Delaware Public Archives. This tour of the building was done in conjunction with a local holiday which is celebrated in Delaware's capital every year, known as Old Dover Days. As a special feature, this tour showcased a display of 36 World War I propaganda posters from 1917 to 1918 to commemorate the 100th anniversary of America's entry into the war. The posters encourage participation from the American public with rationing of food and raw materials, as well as buying government bonds to help fund the war effort. On to our international report. From the UK, the title reads, Albert Ball's Final Journal Entry. Last week, we mentioned the death of Albert Ball, famous British flying ace, during our War in the Sky segment. 
Ball's surviving relatives just released his last journal entry to the public for the first time over the weekend, coinciding with the 100th anniversary of his death. Ball's great-niece, who takes care of his journals now, wants the public to know that Ball was not the loner everyone supposes he was, and that his optimism, enthusiasm, and love of life shines through in the entries of his journal. Read more about Albert's journal through the link in the podcast notes. It's a great reminder that even though we know a lot about the events of World War I, there's always more to discover and learn about the people who sacrificed so much. From France, the headline reads, Cambrai tank veteran Deborah prepares for move. A tank was discovered after lying buried for decades. The tank's name is Deborah, the Mark IV female tank, and is about to move further than she's moved in a hundred years. She's been sitting in a barn in a small town in France for the past years, and now with the help of two heavy-duty cranes and a special transporter, she'll be moved to her forever home at the new World War I museum dedicated to the Battle of Cambrai. Read more about her upcoming move, as well as about how she was discovered by a local Frenchman, by following the link in the podcast notes. On to the spotlight in the media. With us today is singer-songwriter Gordon Thomas Ward, who wrote and produced a single called The Boys of Seventeen. Welcome, Gordon. Well, thank you for having me. Gordon, tell us about the project and the song. Well, I was contacted by the Genealogical Society of the Westfields in New Jersey to uh, write a song to honor the soldiers from their town who served and died in World War One, And... Um, that, that got me going on some research. I had been a history teacher for a number of years and knew a bit about World War I, but I wanted to get some more information and figure out how to approach this. So the song follows one soldier, if you will, but it's really about every soldier. And what occurred to me when I was write, writing this is I wanted to tell the story about how the soldiers that were training to go over there and going through their training in various places to, to be sent over to Europe. These soldiers were prepared to, to do the work of soldiering, but they were not at all prepared for how to respond emotionally to what they would see over there. Just the horror and the absolute, you know, it's been said before, but hell on earth that they encountered over there. There is no training, I believe, that can sufficiently prepare one for that. And as a result, you know, a lot of the soldiers came back badly scarred, and the, the soldier that's the subject of the song does not make it back. And one of the things that just struck me about the horror over there was that when they would go over the top and the shells would be exploding around them, not only were there body parts of live soldiers being, you know, thrown around or cast around the battlefield, but the shells would unearth corpses. So you'd get pieces of corpses that would be flying around in, in the air as well. And the horror of that is just unimaginable. So, Gordon, we're going to play a little piece of the song at the end here, especially the chorus uh, on the closing, but tell us a little bit about you as a musician. Yeah, I'm a singer-songwriter, and I've written songs for other topics as well, and I perform and tour around the Northeast mainly. The song, The Boys of Seventeen, features uh, myself uh, on guitar and vocals, Eric Troyer, 
he's, he's pretty well, well known. He served as the co-producer and he also added the bass and synthesizer. We had Keith Gellner come in on snare drums and Peter Bernischko on flugelhorn. And it came together pretty well. Thank you, Gordon. That was musician, author, and radio host Gordon Thomas Ward. You can listen to the whole song by following the link in the podcast notes. Moving on to articles and posts from the Commission's blossoming website. First, we have a new resource section on the site called the Promotion Toolkit. The toolkit offers resources for promotions of commemoration events, reportage activities, and fundraising. There is general information, the War That Changed the World logo, stock video footage in public domain, a great high-resolution library of World War I public domain photos, educational videos about the war, and if you want to do a little peer-to-peer fundraising for us in our programs, we have donation appeal videos that you can post on your Facebook, on website, other social media places, asking for help in raising money to build a National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. to honor our Doughboy veterans. The site is available at www.cc.org promotion. Speaking of Doughboys, you know, there's no longer any living World War I veterans, but you can keep your family World War I veterans' memory alive at our Family Ties Stories of Services site. Here, you can submit your ancestor story, along with pictures at www.cc.org stories. From the Stories of Service archive, this week we feature Thad Manning Mangum. His story was submitted by his grandson, Michael. Thad served in Company K in the 323rd Infantry Regiment, the 81st Army Division, the Fighting Wildcats. He was mustered into the Army in front of the courthouse in Greenville, North Carolina, on May 25, 1918, and by 3 a.m. the next morning he was on a train and on his way to South Carolina for basic. By August 16, 1918, he arrived in France where he served until the end of the war. Meet Thad and learn more about his life of service at our Stories of Services page. Again, as we said, you can submit photos and stories of World War I veterans in your family, and they'll be preserved in perpetuity in the National Archive at www.cc.org stories. In our WWWrite blog, which explores World War I's influence on contemporary writing and scholarship, this week's post is titled, How I Turned a Family Archive into an Epic Saga of the Great War. It features journalist, writer, and teacher Richard Backus. For the post, Backus discusses the complex process of writing his novel, Into No Man's Land, which was inspired by a family archival collection of letters and other artifacts dating from his grandfather's experience in World War I as a trench commander in France. If you're interested in World War I's influence on contemporary writing and scholarship, sign up and follow the blog at www.cc.org slash W-W-R-I-T-E. 
Richard Backus also curates his own blog on the Commission's website called Trench Commander, providing details and insights that go well beyond his book. You can follow him at www.cc.org trench-commander, all lowercase. Moving on to World War I and social media with The Buzz and with Catherine Aiki. Catherine, what's happening in World War I commemoration and social media this week? Well, Wilson and the United States have declared war on Germany, but apparently not all Germans were made aware of this. The president's address had its most important passage deleted by imperial order in German newspapers, so soldiers in the French army decided to educate their frontline companions across no man's land. This week, we found a great image from the Imperial War Museum's archive of French soldiers preparing to send off that very information by air. Printed again in German with the censored passage printed in red, leaflets with Wilson's full speech were distributed by balloon and airplane to the German army. Check out that photo on our Instagram account. That handle is at ww1cc. That's at ww1cc. Secondly, now although the PBS American Experience documentary series The Great War has already aired, you can still stream it on PBS for a while longer. Additionally, American Experience is publishing supplementary articles on their website. We shared one of these on Facebook this week titled Diary of a War Nurse. It features the words of Helen Dor Boylston, a nurse who served with the first Harvard unit, a U.S. medical team that treated more casualties than any other group of American doctors during the war. She published an account of her experiences in her 1927 book, Sister, The War Diary of a Nurse. You can read some of her words at the American Experience website, but here's a quote that I liked in particular. February 23rd, glorious day out. Spring comes so early here. Already the line of the hills against the sky is green and Jock, the camp gardener, is plowing in the quadrangle. 200 gas cases came down last night, poor wretched things, and we have no beds for them. Had to put stretchers on the floor and they were so uncomplaining about it. One said to me as I was bathing his eyes while he lay on the floor, it's jolly good to be here, sister. The last story I wanted to share from this week comes from the American home front. As much as war can help stimulate the economy, a booming and quickly growing industrial sector can cause unintended damage. The radium girls are a perfect haunting example of that. Women moved more and more into new job sectors during the war as men shipped out and production volumes increased. The United States Radium Corporation in Orange, New Jersey hired young women to work in their clock factories, painting watches and military dials with the new element radium, which had been discovered by Mary Curie a little less than 20 years previous. Dial painting was the elite job for poor working girls. It paid more than three times average but it came at an extremely high cost, one that only revealed itself over times. The girls, who literally glowed in the dark after their shifts, began to experience some gruesome side effects and one by one died after rotting from the inside out. It's a horrifying but important story, an event that led to some important changes in US labor laws, an example of how long the reach war and its destruction can have. Thank you, Catherine. That's it for World War I Centennial News for this week. Thank you for listening. We also want to thank our guests, Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog, Nathan King, Digital Communication Specialist for the National Park Service, Gordon Thomas Ward, musician, author, and radio host, 
Catherine Akey, the commission's social media director and also the line producer for the show, and I'm Teo Mayer, your host this week. The U.S. World War I Centennial Commission was created by Congress to honor, commemorate, and educate about World War I. Our programs are to inspire a national conversation and awareness about World War I. We're bringing the lessons of 100 years ago into today's classrooms. We're helping to restore World War I memorials in communities of all sizes across our country. And we're building a national World War I memorial in Washington, D.C. We rely on your donations. No government appropriations or taxes are being used. So please, give what you can by going to www.cc.org donate, all lowercase. Or, if you're on your smartphone, text the word WW1 to 41444. That's the letters WW, the number 1, to 41444. World War I Centennial News is brought to you as a part of this effort, and we want to thank the Commission's founding sponsor, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, for their support. The podcast can be found on our website at ww1cc.org cn and on iTunes and Google Play at ww one Centennial News. Our Twitter and Instagram handles are both at ww1cc and on Facebook at ww1centennial. Thanks for joining us. And this week, don't forget to talk to somebody about the centennial of World War I. So long. Never forget to write home, even if only alive. Just try to make your mother feel you commend to make good although you have the whole world against you. Send up your love and a kiss. Those are the things that 